0: Well, we're going to be continuing in our series, Genesis, in the beginning. Um, We're going to be in Genesis 1, first page of your Bible. If you've got large print, it may be the second page, or if super large print, you may be on the third page. Put your hand up if you're on the third page of your Bible, and I'll buy you some glasses. Um, But we're just going to dive right in. We're starting at verse 26, and we're going to be looking at a really important theme. Actually, this theme is kind of interwoven all throughout Scripture, and um, it's really one of the most amazing doctrines that we know. It has vast implications. So let's start from verse 26. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We've made it to the end of the sixth day. Uh, We're going to be talking about one of the most foundational teachings in Christianity. We're actually going to be unpacking more of this verse. There's too much in this verse, I think, for me to kind of tackle in one sermon. So I'm going to be pulling on some threads as we get a few weeks um, on. Uh, But today we're going to be looking at the concept of the image of God. What is the image of God? Well, we see that it's a central theme throughout all Scripture. It's essential to understanding the way in which we are living in the world right now it's a crucial theme because without it you can't understand yourself and you can't understand other people and you most certainly cannot understand and truly know god the bible says that every human being is made in the image and likeness of god the image and likeness of god no matter who you are where you're from what you've done in life every human being is made in his image and therefore reflects Him. Everyone has this intrinsic, irreducible value placed in them by God. Why is this important? Well, if you happen to find yourself in a position where you need to see a therapist, um, you know, and you go to them, and if they're not Christians, if they're secular, they're likely going to tell you something along the lines of, you're amazing, you're awesome, you have value, your life has value. You're fully capable of fulfilling all your dreams. Here's how you can do it. Let me coach you. Let me help you. We're going to make your life much better. All you need is self-esteem. All you need is more positive thinking structures. Um, We'll get some people to help you. We're going to be doing this. But is this actually uh, going to help people? Is this actually getting at the truth? Because the therapist with a secular worldview has no... Uh, basically no standard with which to say any of that. If they don't believe in God, the whole concept of human value is just one big assumption. For instance, Bertrand Russell, a famous 20th century Mm -hmm. atheist, says this. He says, Man is the product of causes which had no prevision to the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. If we are the result of unguided, random forces and the human is nothing more than a complex interaction of atoms, on what basis can we say that any of us have any value? Oliver Wendell Holmes outlines this very well when he says, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or to a grain of sand. I find it fascinating, curious even, that in a secular culture like Australia, Everyone is so caught up with this idea of human rights and value when we have no basis for any of that whatsoever. G.K. Chesterton points out the absurdity of this. He says this, it's funny. Listen very carefully. A secular person, as a politician, will cry out that war is a waste of life. And then, as a philosopher, that all life is a waste of time. The secularist goes first to a political meeting where he complains that the natives are treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the secularist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. It's an utter absurdity, the secular worldview. And so why are human beings so caught up in all these contradictory beliefs? I believe it's because innately they have a sense of the Creator. They know that there is a God, and so how can they reconcile what they feel internally with what they say that they believe? They're a walking contradiction. And the Bible tells us the answer. Why? We're made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. The doctrine of the image of God is the basis for all human rights. It's the basis for all justice. It's the basis for all intrinsic value. Without it, we truly have no greater worth than anything else in this universe. We're just a bunch of oscillating atoms just like a chair is or the floor is or a grain of sand is. There is no difference. We're just more complex. But we all know deep down that that's not true. So I want to show you three things today from the text. The first thing, I want to show you the nature of Of the image of God. Number two, I want to show you the collapse of the image of God. And number three, the true image of God. So the first one, the nature of the image of God. So if you look at our passage, we see that God has created human beings in two two ways, well, two things that I want to bring forth, his likeness and his image. He has created human beings After his image and after his likeness. Well, in his image and after his likeness. And so the word here that we see for men, you might have a a footnote in your Bible, it's Adama. It sounds very similar to Adam, doesn't it? Well, it is almost the exact same word uh, because it basically is Adam, the first human being, and because he's the representative for humanity, uh, he basically becomes the word for humanity. It's kind of basically the Hebrew word of saying Adam kind creatures that follow after the kind of Adam. Adam. So those who are descended in Adam. In English, we might say man or mankind, but it carries that same sort of meaning. We're saying the descendants of that individual, Adam. So mankind, the descendants of Adam, are made after the image of God and in His likeness. And so these two words, image and likeness. They're very closely related, but they're different terms. I'm going to define them for you. Image in the Hebrew mindset was tied to kingship and refers to representation. What's going on here is it seems that God was creating his own representatives in this world, creatures that reflected and imaged him. Some have called humans uh, sort of God's vice-regents. Now, um, I bet you most of you don't know what that word vice-regent means, but it's basically the representative of the rule of a king. So someone who could act on behalf of the king, the vice regent. And so we see how this is the case in the text, because what happens right after he makes man in his image? Well, he gives them dominion, authority, rulership, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping things that creep on the earth. Mankind, basically, were to be the lords and ladies of the earth and were to rule over the world with wisdom and care. They were made to be his representatives. Okay, well, that's what image sort of getting at. I'm going to unpack it a bit more. But then we've got likeness. And this language is tied to sonship. Sonship. In Luke 3.38, we've got all the genealogies. And when we get to Adam... We've got everyone that's a son of such and such, son of such and such. Who's Adam the son of? Anyone know? God, the son of God, Adam. Uh, Look at the language in uh, Genesis 5.3, I'll get it up for you. It says, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. See, the word likeness carries with it this theme of sonship or better relationship. If you could define the two, image refers to authority and likeness refers to relationship. We were created for authority and relationship. Think of it like this. Being made in God's image means that man is both like God and represents God. And when I say like, you have to be very careful what you mean by like. We aren't gods. We are not gods. But we are made to be like God there's certain communicable attributes of God. That's what the theologians call it. it. basically means attributes that God can give to us, like love, like justice. We have a sense of justice, like intelligence and logic, things that God can convey onto us. But the things, incommunable, incommunicable attributes of God are things like His all-powerfulness, I guess. He's not conveying that to us. We're not gods. We don't have that ability. We don't have omniscience. We can't know all things. We can't be all places at all times. See, that we don't get. But we do get part of God's nature. But is that all there is? Is that what the image of God is? Well, the Bible actually never really defines for us the image of God. It gives us a lot of clues into the image of God, but it never comes out and says this is exactly what the image of God is. So we're going to have to do a bit of a word study, a bit of a a look throughout the Bible and see what the image of God means. So, let's start with verse 27. We don't have to go very far. It says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. See, the image and likeness of God is given both equally to men and women. He created men with two immutable genders, male and female, and he affirms the equal dignity, value, and worth of both genders. Both are made in his image. And Genesis is the most ancient document that we're aware of that affirms the equality of the sexes. The sexes are equal in being and nature. That's what we see from this text. Equally valuable to God, equally made in His image and in His likeness. But don't think this means functional sameness. We're equal in being and nature, but not in functional sameness. As we've seen in other weeks, the uh, genders fulfill different roles in God's good design. design, um, And we may explore that a little later in in, in some later um, weeks. But of course this is true. Because what do we see? Let us make man in our image. Do you notice how in this passage it flips between... This language of our and us to him. God all of a sudden is multiple people and in the next minute he's singular. Well, what's going on there? Well, God is triune. We're not going to unpack that today because that's woo, that's going to be a big sermon. Um, but God is triune and we know that he is equal in, um, in being in each person of the Godhead, but each person in the Godhead functions differently. We can see that. And so if God is going to create human beings in His image, of course, He's going to create these human beings that are equal in being but different in function. Uh, And sadly, this view is not assumed around the world because even ancient or modern cultures as well, the genders are not seen as equal. For instance, during the China one-child policy, you only had the ability to have one child. And what gender child did the families want? They wanted boys. They wanted boys. So if they had a choice to choose between a boy or a girl, the families went for the boys. And in a country with forced abortions and sterilization, mothers had to decide whether or not they would abort their unborn girls in favor of getting pregnant with a boy. They only had one shot, so they were going to have a boy. This led to this massive gender imbalance throughout China. There are so many more men in China than there are girls. See, a belief or a lack of belief in the image of God has real-world consequences. It has real-world consequences. The question is this, who gets to define human value? Who gets to define it? A small collection of intellectual elites who have massive influence and sway in a society, is that who we want to have the say about who, which life has value, which life has purpose, which life has meaning? If we look out throughout history, small collections of elite who have all the power, have they been a force of good or evil in the world? Well, you don't have to study history for long to know that they have been a force. Uh, They've rarely used their power for the benefit of the weak or the oppressed, but have always used it for evil. And so who do we want? Do we want man to have the authority or do we want God to have the authority? That's why in Genesis 9.6, murder is considered wrong. Why is murder wrong? It says, because you don't have the authority to kill another image bearer of God. Genesis 9.6, we put it up. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Human life has value, and we do not have the right to take it away. God treats murder seriously so seriously it carries the death penalty in this verse not only is it an affront to god to murder someone but also just to even curse another person to verbally abuse another human being james 3 8 to 9 look at this no human being can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison with it we bless our lord and father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of god See, we know things like schoolyard bullying is bad, but do you know why it's bad? Because the person who is the target of that bullying is made in the image of God. It is an affront to God himself to abuse someone. It is an affront to God himself to attack someone verbally. Abusive relationships not only attack the person, but God himself who made that person in his image. And he's starting to get the weight of how this changes your behavior. All of a sudden, everyone that you see is made in God's image. Everyone you see has intrinsic value to God. And this shows us something really important about the image of God. It's relational. It's relational. It has to do with three relationships. First relationship. Obvious one, our relationship with God. Second relationship, our relationship with each other. The third one is our relationship with the created order, with creation, with the world around us. A human being who is imaging God well has relationship with God, other people, and the world around him. And so here we are, end of day six. The final animal has been created. Man, we see Adam coming into existence. We're going to look more in that in chapter two. And this creature bears God's image and that sets him apart. From the rest of creation, and he sets this creature, mankind, apart and gives him a task—the task of dominion. And so, there are seven things that you can see about that's being a part of the image of God, just in Genesis one to three, just in Genesis one to three. First one, uh, being humans are living, personal, active beings with personality that exist in this complex union of spirit and body. When Adam is created, we see Genesis 2. Do you know what happens? God forms the man out of dust and breathes into him the breath of life. Human beings have two parts. One physical, one spiritual. We have a body and we have a soul. And so that's our being. Second, intellectually, humans are rational creatures. They have a rational mind. They are aware of themselves, others, their environment, and of God. Human beings possess abilities like critical and logical thinking, memory, imagination, creativity, and language for communicating thoughts. And we see that in the way that Adam is able to communicate and the way that Adam is able to interact with God and with Eve. Uh, We see a will. Humans have a will. We can choose, we make choices. We can choose between varying um, courses of action. Emotionally, the human person experiences a wide range of emotions such as joy, fear, jealousy, anxiety, anger, guilt, and shame. And no greater do we see it that when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and they disobeyed God, what did they first notice or first feel? Shame. We're capable of these complex emotions. And all these things set us apart from the rest of God's creation. Uh, morally, humans possess the ability to distinguish between absolute standards of right and wrong. You know what right and what wrong is. Why? You are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. Six. relationally, the capacity to engage in meaningful relationships with each other and God. Part of God's creation. Last one, functionally, the human has the ability to produce offspring and exercise dominion over the earth. All right, it's a bit hot. Might be feeling a bit tired, but let's get into it. This is the nature of the image of God, everything I just said. Leads us to number two, the collapse of the image of God. It doesn't take a genius to know that something is wrong. Out of all the things that I just said, maybe in your head you're realizing, hang on a minute, none of that perfectly works itself out. When I said that human beings are rational creatures. Maybe some of you scoffed and thought, "Not many are rational creatures." When you s- we can see elements of the image God in every person to varying degrees, but what we see is um, our relationships are full of conflict. We're relational creatures, but we don't do it very well. We're intellectual creatures, but we're not always right. We're moral creatures, and yet we lie, we cheat, we steal, we murder. we function as these rulers over creation and yet we exercise dominion over nature in evil and destructive ways, something has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong. And we're not going to really fully understand this until we get to Genesis 3. And in that chapter, we have what we call the fall. The fall. The human race has fallen from a place of prestige and honor and become mired in sin. And because of this, the image of God is marred, it's tarnished, it's distorted. And while we still have the image of God, and are like God and still represent Him, it's distorted, it's defective. We are a lot less like God now than we were before sin came in. And this is a problem for us. Why? Well, if you're made in the image of God, that means you belong to God. It's a fairly simple equation. If God is the king and we are sent to be his representatives, then therefore we must be part of his kingdom and owe our allegiance to him. And all humans can't escape this truth no matter how much they might want to. Because you were made in the image of God, you are responsible and accountable to God. We've, we saw that last week. We all have this innate sense of the creator. It's um, often puzzled uh, researchers and scientists as to why children overwhelmingly believe in God. No matter where they're raised, no matter whether they're raised in an atheistic or secular household, Genesis 1 answers that for us. We are made in God's image. We have an innate sense of the Creator. If the image of God has been distorted, then we can expect to have a limited understanding of God. If it's been distorted, then we can take a quick glance at how it ruins our nature. Remember those three relationships I talked about? What has the fool done to our relationship with God? Well, Genesis says that we now die both physically and spiritually. Why? Because we have cut ourselves off from the only source of life. What about our relationship with each other? What has sin done to that? Well, we see Adam and Eve immediately start blaming each other, full of shame, full of bitterness. We only get to... Chapter 4 of Genesis, and we start to see murder. By the end of Genesis, you're probably never going to want to read that book to your kids, the kind of stuff we read in in there. Because human beings, relationally, have broken apart. Last one, our relationship with the created order. Now nature is distorted. The world is a place of hostility, violence, danger, Only the strong survive. Sin has made a wreckage of this world. And the image of God has begun to collapse, but it has not been destroyed. Although the image of God may be distorted, we still have value to God. Even though we failed to image God correctly, you still have value to God, intrinsic within yourself. Why? Because you were made in His image. He did not leave this world to suffer, to be full of chaos, misery, bloodshed. He came to redeem it. brings us to our third point, the true image of God. It wasn't until Jesus came that we saw the image of God for what it was meant to be. Adam bore God's likeness and was called God's son. And he bore God's image as his representative. And what happened to Adam? Well, he failed miserably. He rebelled. He plunged the entire human race into sin. And here we got Jesus. And what has Jesus known as? The Son of God. We hear that all the time. The Son of God who lived in perfect union with the Father here on earth, completely obeying the will of the Father where Adam disobeyed. Where Adam battled the dragon in the garden and failed. Jesus battled the dragon in the desert and did not yield to temptation as Adam had. Jesus bore the image of God perfectly. Perfectly. Listen to these passages. 2 Corinthians 4.4. We've got a couple going to be up on the screen. Uh, The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Listen to this. Who is the image of God? Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We see this thread all throughout scripture is the image of God. And here comes Jesus and Jesus perfectly fulfills the twofold aspect. He represents God entirely. When we look to Jesus, we can see God. We can see God's character. We can see God's nature. When we look to Jesus, we see someone in perfect union with the Father. Someone who perfectly images the way that human beings were supposed to be, the perfect son of God, where we have all failed to be his children. So what were the three things we discussed before? The image of God had to do with one, our relationship with God. We look to Jesus and we see Him living in perfect union with the Father. Obeying His will, listen, even to the point of death on the cross. Number two, our relationships with each other. Jesus taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But He didn't just teach us something. He showed us it perfectly. He actually loved his people he actually loved them to the point of death he says in john 15 13 greater love has no one than this and someone lay down his life for his friends number three jesus's relationship with the created order how do we see that in his life with creation Jesus was undoing the curse that was placed on the creation in Genesis 3. When he cast out sickness, he raised dead people, he commanded the wind and the waves, and it was stilled. And in Jesus' kingdom, we see that there is no room for sickness and death. There is no room for thorns and suffering. There is no room for tears and misery. We see in the gospel that it restores us the image of God. It restores us the image of God. How? How? It restores our relationship with God. It restores our relationship with each other as we learn to love as we've been loved in Jesus and it restores our relationship with creation as we learn to cherish and love what God has made. In the church, we're supposed to see that love work itself out. In the church, we're supposed to see the image of God play itself out as people begin to function relationally the way that God originally intended. In the church, we see people come and know and love Jesus, come and know and love God, and restore their relationship with God. Look at the language in Romans 8.29. For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Have you guys ever pondered the language that Paul uses here? A lot of people just distill this down to, uh, oh, what would Jesus do? But you've really missed the mark. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, the best way for us to understand the image of God is to look at Jesus. God is conforming us into the image of Christ, the perfect man, so that we can relearn what it means to be human. And we need to relearn what it means to be human because your upbringing was not enough. And I don't care how Christian your upbringing was. If you do not know God, you do not have a true image of Christ, image of God. God is conforming us into the image of Christ, the perfect man, so that we can relearn what it means to be human, to be in perfect unity with God, with each other and His creation. So what do do we see when we get to the book of Revelation? Revelation apart from all the craziness, what do we we see when we get to the end? It's a beautiful book, Revelation. We see the earth is full of the knowledge of God. Everyone will know God and live in perfect harmony with each other, with Him. What about the creation? What happens there? New heavens and new earth, and new heavens and a new earth. So the image of God is this amazing sort of theme that kind of weaves its way all throughout Scripture and all that God intended in the book of Genesis we see is restored, but not just restored. Not only will it be just as good as Genesis, but it will be better for having happened the way that it did. If we look back at the secularists, we see that they are alone, adrift in an absurd world without hope, And after hearing all this, what can we do other than pity them? To feel sorry for them. They have suppressed the truth and have unhitched themselves from really the only source of truth, the image of God. Really, if you start to cultivate it, if you start to be conformed to Jesus' image and live in relationship with God, people and creation, well, you're going to find that your life is going to be marked a lot more by joy. Your life is going to be marked a lot more by peace and a kind that is indescribable. Don't lose sight of what is important don't lose sight of the image of God It's foundational to our faith love God love neighbor but what if I'm not a Christian what about how do I kind of get in on this well not everyone gets to be included Many will not bend the knee and live in rebellion to Jesus to the bitter end. Remember Romans 8.29 says, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Ultimately, this is God's work. God is the one who gives salvation. He commands all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. And if they do, they discover to their astonishment that God was chasing them the whole time. Pray that the God who opens blind eyes and raises the dead will open your eyes and make you alive in Christ so that we can image God and know the peace and the hope that He intended for us right here, Genesis 1. Let's pray. Father, as we ponder weighty things, as we ponder things that are hard to get a grasp of and an understanding of, we pray that the Spirit of all truth will lead us into greater knowledge of truth, that your Son Jesus will show forth for who He is and shine His glory into our hearts, Lord. Please, Lord, we pray, help us to cultivate the image of God that you've placed within us to see the distortion and the defectiveness of it restored to us, Lord, that we can restore our relationships with you, with those around us, Lord, and with your creation. Help us, Lord, to exercise dominion over this world in a way that is uh, honoring to you, the creator. And Lord, help us to pursue relationships with each other in a way that is not lip service, flattery but real genuine fellowship Uh, we love you lord we praise you in jesus name amen